Launching Icebergs by Ennis A. Mills. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Launching Icebergs by Enos A. Mills, Saturday Evening Post, June 5, 1920. One May, a quarter of a century ago, a whaling vessel lowered a boat to Indians and myself on the Alaskan coast, supposedly by the entrance of the Mirror Inlet. Rowing inland, we broke abruptly through the fog screen into the midst of a fleet of icebergs. Many were of stupendous size, and several were of striking ice architecture. One pinnacled berg appeared like an enormous five-master. A majority of this strange fleet shone dazzlingly white in the morning sun with blue-black shadows. There were stragglers, gray-black like colliers, and a few scattered ones of marvelous blue. We pushed up the bay and presently were pulling to right and left among the icebergs putting out to sea, watching on our left the broken bristling ice cliffs, the fronts of glaciers, against which the waves were washing. Occasionally a heavy towering mass of ice collapsed, creating terrific explosions in the water and sending rings of violent waves rushing toward every part of the bay. There was an almost continuous roar and splash of these heavy waves as they dashed upon the countless bergs scattered through the bay, causing them to rise and roll long after the wave had collapsed high up on miles of distant broken shore. The Indians, munching fish eggs, watched the strange moving exhibit with interest, but fortunately with less enthusiasm than myself. Two heavy wave swells from launched icebergs rushed our boat and nearly spilled us as we switched over the top. The Indians insisted on our keeping about a quarter of a mile distant from cliff fronts, where bergs were launched and storm waves started. But we were caught by a danger unsuspected by the Indians and to me unheard of. We were headed for a distant inland channel, and several times dashed between close drifting bergs that threatened to crush us. We watched that these did not bow a shattered pinnacle upon us, or that their falling ice chunks and boulders did not explode and deluge us with a small fountain. At last we came to a stretch of open water. Not a wave was in sight, and a solitary big berg near us appeared asleep. Suddenly we were lifted into the air upon upraised water, and for a moment looked down upon the top of this big berg. An enormous blue ice mass had broken loose from the depths and risen under our boat. Then we were swished shoreward on a wild high wave, which flung us out of the bay. We dragged our drenched selves from an alder thicket sixty feet above the shoreline. One of the Indians was still munching dried fish eggs. The alder clumps had been our shock absorber, but the boat had broken its head against one boulder and its back across another. Dripping, we three stood for a moment, watching all our food and bedding floating off with the flotsam and jetsam of the bay. The boat was smashed, the outfit a total loss. But flopping among the willows and alders were hundreds of fish, which were flung ashore by the wave which changed us to castaways. We built a driftwood fire among the alders and boulders, and as we steamed, 
we looked in and round the bay upon one of the grandest glacial exhibits in all the world. We had missed Muir Inlet, but we had landed in the unrivaled Yakutat Bay. The detached iceberg that wrecked us had risen from the bottom of the bay, one thousand feet in advance of the visible front of the glacier. This submarine berg was a deep blue, but changed rapidly to white. A number of the many glaciers that terminated in the bay were sliding in canyon channels, with bottoms a few hundred feet below water level, while the tops of their ice fronts stood two hundred feet above the water. That part above water level was cut off by wave action and detached as icebergs more rapidly than the submerged, invisible part. Apparently all bluebergs rose from the depth, and these changed rapidly to white. The gray-black bergs were masses of glacial debris, gravel, and boulders. This mountain-locked harbor appeared to contain all the glaciers and icebergs of creation. The mountain walls were so thickly heavily laden with ice and snow that the rocks were only here and there visible. The adjacent white mountains sent down mile-wide glaciers which terminate in this bay, launch ships of white icebergs, which later go down to the sea. I.C. Russell, the celebrated geologist and glaciologist, had explored this scene a few years earlier, and Frederick Thunston had landed somewhere in the region only a few days before. I was bound for the interior of Alaska, but thought to visit the Muir Glacier, in which Muir had interested me, while waiting for the excess of snow to clear from the Chilkoot Pass Trail. My plan was to repair the broken boat, and with this go for another and supplies. These could perhaps be obtained at the nearest Indian encampment. The two Indians said that with repair materials they could put the Humpty Dumpty boat together again. All the remainder of the day we three searched miles of shoreline among the boulders and alders, and that evening had a pile of fragments, broken boxes and their precious nails, rope, a few tin cans, and the green and invaluable skin of a wolf that had evidently been killed by a wave rush which crushed him against the boulders. We broiled fish for supper and lay down without bedding between driftwood fires. The night was still except for the falling ice cliffs and the wash from their waves. The stars were near and the snowy mountains made splendid marble architecture in the night. Leaving the Indians struggling with the broken fragments of the boat, I next morning climbed a high commanding point above the bay. Snowy mountains, glaciers, and icy peninsulas edged the bay. Everything was on a stupendous scale. A wide canyon below me carried a glacier that extended miles and leagues back into the high white mountains. A snowslide gave an excellent exhibition by plunging down upon the glacier. The slide was so far away that I heard not a sound, but so large was it that its lurches, leaps, and curvings were easily seen. A 1,000-foot column of agitated snow dust rolled up and stood briefly over its roughened mass, where this stopped half a mile out on the glacier. One avalanche, a mixture of rocks, ice, and snow, started near me and crashed down upon the glacier. For longer than a minute its echoes and re-echoes rioted so vigorously among the snowy cliffs and icy canyons that I looked 
expecting to see something in action. When the avalanche came to a stop out on the ice, the mass appeared as large as several imperators. But so extensive was the scene that when I lowered my field glass, I had difficulty finding it with my good eyes. Northward, as far as I could reach, was a vast desert of snow. Many mountains appeared made of it. Others were deeply buried beneath it. And here and there the tip of a peak barely pierced its heavy strata. What an array of water and cold storage! A snow desert as large as two or three New England states, together with hundreds of square miles of ice, glaciers that would make a showing even in Texas. In due time all this crystal cloud material would be shaped into finished products, icebergs. These would be launched by the glaciers, exhibited in the bay, in front of the steep white mountains, then sent forth in a strange sea voyage to melt and mingle again with the waves and the clouds. Off in the distant west lay what I took to be the Malaspina Glacier. It occupied an empire of surface and was so nearly stagnant that groves were growing in its debris-covered back. A Glacier in an Earthquake The 2,000-mile stretch of Pacific coast between the mouth of the Columbia River and Cook's Inlet, Alaska, has an extremely heavy snowfall. Sixty feet a year and upward, mostly upward. The Yakutat Bay, Mount St. Elias region, is laden beneath its full-heaped chair. More snow falls each year than melts. The accumulating snow quickly changes to ice through compression and partial melting. As this ice mass becomes sufficiently weighty, it begins to draw down slopes. It becomes a flowing ice river, a glacier. Glaciers, like water rivers, move forward along the line of least resistance. The rate of movement depends on the weight of the mass, the degree of steepness and roughness of the slope down which it moves. Small and nearly stagnant glaciers advance from 1 to 12 inches a day but the majority of glaciers go forward from 1 to 10 feet a day. On rare occasions, a combination of favorable conditions may cause any glacier to lurch briefly and slide forward at greatly increased speed. A few years ago, an earthquake in Alaska temporarily put new life into numerous glaciers. They were shaken out of slow-going ways. The Muir Glacier was shattered and changed by the quake. Its lower reaches slid forward and so jammed its terminal bay with icebergs that steamers were unable to enter the bay for two years. By the time the bergs had cleared, the end of the glacier had retreated and no longer reached tidewater. For a few days following the earthquake, a number of glaciers rushed ice deliveries, launched numbers of icebergs. This was followed by normal flow for some months. Then an intensified, prolonged flow occurred, evidently due to the flood of glacier material, rocks, ice, and snow, which the earthquake had shaken down upon the source months before. The terminus of these glaciers, one, two, and even three years after the quake, advanced, pushed their noses forward from a few feet to a quarter of a mile. This quake was a few years later than my visit. I saw only one glacier that was advancing beyond its former terminus. It was one that melted away without reaching tidewater. 
Its 1,000-foot front was plowing through morainal deposits made years before. In places, this debris was nearly 100 feet deep. Part of the moraine was covered with a spruce forest that was more than a century old. The crushed, cracking trees filled the air with the odor of balsam and pitch as the ponderous, irresistible mass pushed invisibly forward. In front of the ice mass, trees were leaning forward at every angle. Numbers were uprooted while others were down and the ice front sliding upon them. This forest, now being flayed and crushed alive, had grown in glacier-made soil, soil crushed and ground from rocks and distributed in other days by a glacier. On the way back to camp, I walked two miles over the rough surface of the glacier, on which I had seen the avalanche descend. One section evidently was above a rough, steeply inclined place in the bottom of the channel, a place that would create wild rapids in a river. The slow advancing ice opened into crevices as it passed over this place. An enormous pile of rock debris that was emptying into these crevices had slid down upon the glacier, more than a mile upstream. The time required to advance this far had probably been about two years. Sculpturing the Earth A goodly quantity of this rock-slide debris had already dropped into the yawning crevices. While I stood near several large rock fragments from the pile tumbled in, and on the caving edge small stuff was almost constantly sliding or tumbling in. Down in the glacier these rocks would be pressed powerfully together. Numbers probably would drop to the bottom, where the glacier, with a few hundred tons pressure, would rise and slide among them, crushing and grinding them against the bottom and each other as the ponderous glacier moved ever forward. A glacier is a sculpture of the rock ball called the earth, and it carves the surface into canyons and plateaus, making scenery and soil. At the source of a glacier, as well as at crevices, ice, snow, sand, gravel, and slide rock accumulate and mingle in the upper end of the channel, and this confused mass of cutting tools tears and polishes the sides and bottoms of the canyon channel as the mass slides forward. Not only is the channel widened, deepened, and straightened, but the tools themselves are mostly worn to dust by the time the terminus or end of the glacier is reached. The last ice age made vast changes in the topography of the northern hemisphere. It ground up and moved mountains, changed river channels, made thousands of lake basins and fjords, and covered thousands of square miles with productive soil. Glaciers, compressed snow flowers, carved grand scenery and soil. Much of the soil in the temperate zone is largely made up of rock flour of glacial manufacture. The surface of several Mississippi Valley states is deeply overlaid with glacial grindings, and most forests in the Rockies and in the Cascades and the Sierras are standing in glacial soil. Returning to camp after a long day among glacial wonders, I found that the serene Indians had made a start in assembling the fragments of our shattered boat. The repairs would require a few days longer to finish. As my assistance was declined, I took a hunk of broiled fish and set off for a two-day trip, hoping to reach the source of one of the glaciers. Among the willows by the lower end of the glacier, near the bay, 
I found a number of flocks of ptarmigan. A mile or so up the glacier on the south wall, I saw a number of bighorn sheep. This glacier was more than three miles wide, and probably a thousand or more feet thick, and filled the bottom of a canyon from wall to wall. The snowy icy walls rose perhaps two thousand feet higher. On top of the glacier I walked eastward up this wild white wide avenue. The surface of the glacier, which appeared generally level, was mostly snow-covered. Most of the time I was within a hundred feet of the south wall, but kept this distance to be safe from falling rocks and down-rushing slides. Another danger was from the snow-covered crevices. Numbers of the wider and longer crevices were either open or were separated by high, sharp ice ridges, which advertised the hidden dangers. In places there would be a single narrow crevice, in other places half a hundred openings in close succession. Whenever there was any doubt I explored with a long staff, but much of the time I was able to keep on the solid snowless ice of wind-swept ridges where there was no danger. A Grizzly for Company Mid-forenoon a bear, evidently a grizzly, crossed the glacier from the south. I was in a hollow between snowdrifts and a crevice, and he did not see me. When about a quarter of a mile out on the ice, he heard a snowslide behind and turned to watch it. This slide was closely followed by a rock slide, which went down with thunderous roaring and crashing. The grizzly watched it, rising on hind feet. As soon as the straggling tail in fragments ceased coming down, he went to the rock wreckage and climbed over it. Here and there he stopped to eat something, probably roots. Leaving the wreckage, he followed his tracks back to the spot where he had stopped, turned for another look, then shuffled across to the north side, where he disappeared among the rocks. Often I turned aside to examine the enormous pile of avalanche rocks that lay upon the glacier. A few of these were of enormous size, but I came upon one that was thirty-two steps long. It was embedded slightly in the ice, but rose at least thirty feet above ice level. This enormous rock was floating down on the ice stream as readily as a chip floats on water. Of course its progress was slow. It evidently had been carried about one mile. On top of this wide glacial highway, I walked inland over hundreds of piles of debris, some almost pure snow, other mostly rocks and earth. The spring thaw evidently was the time of snow and rock slides. As the thaw was releasing the rocks wedged loose during the winter and loosening the big, steep-placed snowdrifts, as I could see miles ahead with no end of the glacier in sight, after six hours walking, I turned aside to explore the source of a small tributary glacier or ice river. Glaciers begin abruptly like a river which starts in full volume from voluminous springs. This small glacier filled a tributary canyon about a mile long which ended abruptly against a 1,000-foot wall. Down this wall and from slopes to right and left came snow slides and rock slides. A score or more of these had piled their contributions in one mass of fierce confusion a little below the uppermost end of this glacier. Rocks, ice, snow, and a pile of four hundred or more feet high 
were settling into place and in a short time would be blended and a part of the slow-moving ice river. Glaciers, like river, cut headward with surprising rapidity. The high precipitous wall in front of the head of this glacier evidently was due to the headward undermining and back-cutting of the glacier. The crack, or Bergschrund, which commonly is open between the upper end of the glacier and the snowfield or rock wall, allows air, and with it changing temperature, to reach beneath the upper end of the ice. This air and changing temperature means freezing and thawing, rapid rock disintegration and separation. Often the upper end of the ice freezes fast to loosen blocks of rock. These are then slowly dragged out. Long's Peak, Colorado, has been half carried away by the headward cutting of a glacier. This attacked its east wall from the abutting end of a glacier-filled canyon at an altitude of about 12,000 feet, 2,500 feet below the summit. In the Bighorn Mountains, Wyoming, are remnants of former peaks, the remainder having been carried slowly away by back-cutting glaciers. Canyons now are where peaks formerly stood. Leaving this glacier-forming place, I started on the return journey, hoping to reach the coast before night. During the afternoon, I went across the north wall to examine a peninsula-like ridge of ice that thrust in a quarter of a mile from the north wall and with a surface a few hundred feet higher than the general level of the surface of the glacier. Glaciers move uphill. Evidently, there was an inthrusting rock ridge in the bottom of the canyon, and over this rock ridge, or peninsula, the glacier river flowed, for glaciers, like water under pressure, will flow up a grade or uphill. The glacier was simply flowing up and over this enthrusting obstruction in its channel. Sunset hour, with its long ragged lights and shadows, was on the glacier when I left this deeply creviced icy peninsula and started on. It would require two hours to reach the coast, and as this could not be made before dark, I began to watch for a place to camp, as it would be perilous to travel among the glaciers in the dark. Up on the north wall, several hundred feet above the glacier, was a grove of Sitka spruces. A part of this grove had been recently cut away by a snowslide. The trees thus wrecked lay before me in confusion on the ice. Many of the trees were smashed to cordwood. Numbers were buried end on several feet in the ice. On a bed of boughs between two roaring fires, I had a fairly comfortable primitive night. The following day I spent among the glacier inns in the edge of the bay with its fleet of bergs. The bay is the launching harbor of many glaciers. One of these glaciers, then unnamed, thrust out into the bay an ice front that was at least four miles wide and with ice cliffs more than 200 feet high. Two other glaciers were more than a mile wide, together with numbers of smaller ones, a few of which melted away back from the shore, but which in former times had contributed ice ships to the wading waters. The entire front of a small glacier had recently slid into the sea. Its channel was a few feet above sea level. 
standing in the rock channel by the broken ice front i could hear the grinding of rocks and ice as the ice slid invisibly forward beneath one edge of the front were massed several thousand boulders of assorted sizes these were grinding against one another and the bottom at one point embedded in the ice front was an angular unworn rock fifteen or more feet long that had made a long journey without being forced against either the bottom or another rock though other rocks had been ground to dust under terrific pressure northward across a narrow arm of the bay a small glacier up in a hanging valley the end of which was about one hundred feet above the water discharged its icebergs with drop and splash into the bay hearing a crashing i looked across in time to see an enormous ice chunk it was the entire end of this glacier tumbling into the bay a gushing enormous fountain of water shot up and a ponderous wave swept from it across the bay this wave threw water over the indian boat menders who were at work more than a mile distant and one hundred feet above the shoreline near where i was standing there came a wild rush of waves logs and small icebergs these were flung up on the shore and many left stranded from one hundred to one hundred and thirty feet above water level it was the wildest wave that i have ever seen it was dark at the end of the second day when i reached camp the cheerful indians had fixed the boat and made an excellent paddle the following morning they set off down the bay hoping to find supplies and another boat in an indian camp along the near coast an inspector would not have given this repaired boat an a one release for in rough water it surely would have gone to pieces away went the indians with two or three broiled fish i was not allowed to go along because the craft was dangerously frail even for two one indian speeded with paddle while the other necessarily bailed rapidly and both indifferent to the fact that they were playing with death i planned to remain close to camp as the indians felt that they would find necessities and return that night during the morning i wandered a few miles southward along the now famous russell fjord it was up this fjord that the harriman party steamed a few years later during the afternoon i strolled the shore watching some one of the numerous moving glacial actions one of the best exhibits of the day was given by a hulk of a flat boat like iceberg that was top heavy and tilting with a mass of boulders and other glacial debris it was dark enough for a collier it came in sight from behind other bergs drifting down the bay with parts of its cargo occasionally dropping overboard in passing near me it struck an invisible obstruction and gave a lopsided lurch dumping most of its cargo into the bay the dumping of debris the filling of the bay was steadily going on this berg an instant after dumping rolled back and came near to turning a side turtle shaking itself as it rolled about it finally turned end for end then this rudderless fresh ice hulk was caught in the outgoing tide and set off for a vanishing voyage somewhere out in the wide salty sea
most glaciers over the earth are shrinking during the last two decades. This shrinkage is due either to lessened snowfall or to a slight warming in the glacier regions. Of all the remaining glacial regions of the world, it is doubtful if any excel the wonderful one round Yakutat Bay. Glacial debris, in inconceivable quantities, with embedded logs, strewed or formed every shore of the bay. One stretch of the shoreline had been recently uplifted by internal earth movements. This was about twenty feet above its former level, while another stretch showed subsidence of several feet. At one point a grove just drowned was being battered away by the waves. On the shore, in moraines and in detached places on the mountain sides, were groves of Sitka spruce and growths of arctic willow and alder. I saw many kinds of wild flowers and numerous species of migrating birds. Resident gulls and ptarmigans were plentiful. During the calm, clear evening, I built a bonfire of extravagant proportions. I was determined to give welcome to the Indian rescuers, if any returned, the warmest welcome possible for a castaway. As I sat by the fire, I could hear the splash of falling ice cliffs and the never-ending wash and dash of ice-sent waves against shores near and far. Shortly after midnight, two boats rode into the outer edge of my bonfire light. Three hours later, two boats, four Indians, and I were dodging icebergs far down the bay. One of the large bergs had a number of spruce logs half embedded in it. These thrust from the sides and the top. Flocks of birds rested on those logs. The Indians said that birds sometimes nested on icebergs that floated about in the bay. We landed on the main coast for the night. While busily engaged in making camp in the edge of a dense, damp spruce forest, a small steamer rounded a forested point about a quarter of a mile down the coast. After a deal of shouting and signaling, we attracted attention, and in due time I was on board with the two Indians who took me into the bay and who were to be with me during the summer. The steamers had brought a number of enthusiastic prospectors and their outfits and put these ashore. Alaskan prospectors were increasing in numbers. Two days later, the two Indians, several hundred pounds of supplies, and I were put ashore at the foot of Chilkoot Pass Trail, the trail which became famed a few years later during the strange, intense gold seekers' rush. End of Launching Icebergs by Ennis A. Mills, read by Mary in Arkansas.